Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. Located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Justin E.H. Smith. He is professor of philosophy at the University of Paris and author of many things, including Divine Madness, Leibniz and the Sciences of Life, and Irrationality, a history of the dark side of reason. His new book is The Internet is Not What You Think It Is, A History, A Philosophy, A Warning. Welcome, Professor Smith. Thank you very much for having me, Mark. Okay, at the general discussion, uh, at the beginning, you speak of the great social dreams that people spun around the internet 15, 20 years ago. I remember those very well. They, they, it seems like another age, another time, doesn't it? Uh, what yeah. were some of those more specific hopes that people had? Well, I suppose as I see it, there was a very long dream of outsourcing our reasoning uh uh, skills to machines yeah. in a way that would improve our social life and streamline our democracy and so on. And the way I see it, this is a dream that lasted literally from the end of the 17th century when my great beacon, Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, was <laughs> writing until about 2015, um, when I think the, there was a significant shift in the way we perceive what the internet is capable of doing for us. So it was a long dream, and it died very hard, and it died, again, within very recent memory, and only those who are very young, uh, who kind of came up using these tools, will not remember the more utopian hopes and aspirations that we have for it. But I think what went wrong is indeed that there are limits to how much of our reasoning we ought to feel comfortable outsourcing, yeah. and that it began backfiring on us over the past decade. It really is quite remarkable to think back in, back in 2007, 2008, Facebook was so cool and mm. it was it was it was it, it is yeah it was it was it was utopian it yeah. was hip it it was it was a new age and boy the luster off of Facebook and and Google yeah they're, they're gone we'll, we'll we'll get to that but let me, let me go back in time uh, as you said Leibniz uh, yes. what was the Leibniz, Leibniz's faith in 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 calculation 
Well, I suppose uh, that very much in the spirit of the times, but maybe even more than his contemporaries, he imagined that the human mind is best used to contemplate those topics that are not, so to speak, algorithmizable, that is to say, that cannot be transferred over to uh, any sort of system, microchip-based system or gears and dials-based system that uh, proceeds from inputs into outputs. The human mind is best used to contemplate the eternal, to contemplate God, the immortal soul, the beautiful, and so on, which are things we could be contemplating, incidentally, if we, even if we lived in a very, very different world. And yet, because we're uh, kind of bound to this world, we're also forced to do things like build bridges and measure distances between Hanover and Amsterdam and stuff like that. And that requires arithmetic and and so on. Uh, but fortunately, in our era, which is to say the 1600s, we're starting to be able to again, outsource that to machines. And Leibniz was convinced, in fact, that a huge amount of human reasoning can be outsourced in that way, not just arithmetic, but also questions, for example, of diplomacy, right, where uh, famously he thought that if two nations or two empires were about to go to war, they could just say, calculemus, let us calculate, and they could determine which side is wrong and step back from the brink of war in that way. Now, that seems so foreign to us because I think many of us today take it that if two empires are about to go to war, they don't really care themselves which one's right and which one's wrong, right? That's not what war is all about. War is about power and, and asserting your power over the weaker if you can. Right. So um, <clears throat> this um, then shows an incredible optimism, not just about the future of uh, technology enhanced society, but also about the dawning of perpetual peace in the coming century after the, the finally after the end of the wars of re religion in the middle of the 17th century. So this optimism then presumed that there was, in principle, no limit to the perfectibility of human social life through the use of reason. And indeed, again, that machines have an important role to play in uh, this, uh, this uh, kind of construction of human society based on reason. They, Leibniz and, and I mm -hmm. guess others, uh, talked also about the development of a universal formal language. Mm -hmm. Is was this part of the, Was it was this closely related to the, the the machine kind of outsourcing? Well, it's all it's all certainly connected. And interestingly, artificial languages would 
end up having a very long historical association with peace movements. For example, Bertrand Russell in the early 20th century uh, and his, you know, his, his long career of uh, anti-nuclear activism was also an advocate of Edo, which was one of the candidates for a global artificial language alongside Esperanto and Volapük. Uh, Edo didn't do as well. But for Russell, uh, this goes right back to Leibniz's projects in the 17th century. And indeed, it is connected with the history of computer science because it was supposed, I think rightly, that all natural languages uh, have various imperfections. They have incomplete verb forms and, you know, English spelling is a huge mess and so on. And so formal languages or artificial languages are a way of uh, eliminating some of these natural imperfections that grow up in organic languages. And then a formal language, like the kind of language a computer can process, is just further along in that process of elimination of, let's say, organic idiosyncrasies, right? But eventually it was hoped that machines would be able to process some kind of artificial, cleaned up, uh, 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 corrected version of natural language. And it was not clear which one this would be, whether it would be Latin, whether it would be French, or whether it would be something that starts uh, uh, from scratch. Uh, and, and I think Leibniz inclined toward the latter, the latter expectation that it would be something entirely constructed. But yeah, indeed, it's very, it's very, uh, very connected to the history of, of computing, I think, in, in these obvious ways. Though uh, one should add that in the 17th century, what a computer could do was at most arithmetic. Right, it could add and subtract and, and multiply, but because it was already known that in principle all information can be encoded in strings of zeros and ones, the famous binary calculus, there's no reason in principle why um, uh, a machine that can can calculate can't also, so to speak, crunch concepts yeah. and you know process information. Right. Right. So it's the optimism is gone, at least relative to to the the the, the machines. Um, yeah. Let's put it that way, and it happened very fast. But still, do you think that you, you go into uh, past forms of of skepticism or pessimism? Yeah. Do you think that today's pessimism is in some ways continuous with the mistrust of technology? in the past, say the old Luddites or, or Heidegger and the Heideggerians? Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting question. I think we need to disambiguate a couple of things. And I try to do this uh, as frequently as I can in my writing about the internet. One important issue we need to make clear is, let's say, the economic and corporate structure of the information environment we swim in on social media, um, where this is not uh, uh, in any respect a something like a commons or a public space for deliberative democracy, uh, as people nonetheless often 
treat it as if it were, right? What it is is a private company allowing you to use its service for free in exchange for your data, whether it's Facebook or Twitter or, or whatever. And for that reason, they are under no obligation at all to uh, let you or let users help decide how the algorithms prefer one tweet over another uh, or, uh, you know, to whom they give a larger, a larger stage than, uh, than, than, than to the others. This is not up to us as it would be if social media were truly uh, a, a public space, again, in the kind of uh, sense uh, that Jürgen Habermas understands and other, other political philosophers of the 20th century. Um, and nonetheless, again, we keep right on talking about politics in this pseudo-public space uh, because it's the closest thing we've got. You know, you can go stand on Speaker's Corner if you want. You can you can publish pamphlets if you want and, you know, pass them out the street or something like that. And that might be more open, right? That might be less constrained by the corporate interests of Facebook, for example, but uh, it wouldn't be effective in this day and age, right? So what we're actually doing, I keep on insisting, is something like, you know, we're we're playing at a deliberative democracy themed video game when we're on social media in much the same way that when you're playing Grand Theft Auto, you're playing a stolen car uh, chase-themed video game, right? In both cases, it's just the theme, right? It, it's the vibe that the video game sets with its graphics and so on. But the one is no more the thing it pretends to be than the other, right? Okay, so all of that is just uh, is just the current uh, 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 economic uh, kind of determinism behind the way social media actually uh, functions in our uh, in our current uh, social reality. That is contingent. It doesn't have to be that way. What would, a, what would a preferable alternative model be? The truth is, I don't really know. I am very hesitant to say that, you know, what, the, the government should seize social media from, uh, from their, their corporate owners and give the people democratic oversight over them. I don't want to say that. I'm not committed to that. What is the alternative short of that? Well, we keep seeing social media um, doing kind of uh, ad hoc damage control style uh, reforms only when it becomes absolutely necessary. So the one thing that I think would actually fix this problem is too extreme, too statist for my tastes. Um, and anything short of that, I think, is is uh, is unlikely to fix the problem. So um, that's, again, all just the economics of it. Um, but is there a problem with the technology itself that we could criticize along the lines? Well, you mentioned uh, the Luddites and you mentioned Heidegger. I think um, these are two very different cases. Uh, and, you know, I always insist, like, 
you know, not not that you did something wrong, but don't mention Luddites to me. I mean, it's clearly not like wariness about about what the internet is doing to us is not ipso facto Ludditism. And one thing that it is it is crucial to remember is that Ludd, if he really existed, this is this is unclear, uh, that Ludd was not against um, uh, industrial tools. If in themselves, he was against their effects on uh, working people's lives in England, right? He was against uh, the power that they had to uh, to transform and flatten uh, 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 human productive, satisfactory life, right? Now, Heidegger is a special case because Heidegger doesn't seem to want so much to say that only if if only we had a better political arrangement, we would be less alienated by our tools, right? He seems to think that it's the tools themselves that alienate. Um, and here I would only say, if that's if that's a correct reading of Heidegger, I, I certainly don't agree with that. In the book, I actually mention a rather obscure source, Aldo Leopold, a, a mid-20th century environmentalist writer who published Sand County Almanac in, I think, 1948. And he's talking talking about gadgets uh, used by duck hunters. And I think he makes a really interesting point here, uh, which is that, you know, no one can tell in an a priori way if, say, a duck call gadget is distorting and perverting the art of duck hunting or rather is perfecting it, right? Um, and, you know, hunters have always aspired to imitate the sound of the animal that they're that they're hunting. This is and they've, you know, surely for millennia used various implements to help them with this. And so you could say, well, this is just the art of hunting itself. But obviously it, it could reach a point where the gadget is so effective, so powerful, it let's say it just, you know, attracts hundreds of ducks at a time and they all fall dead right in front of you or something. If that were to happen, the hunter, if he's kind of, you know, a sensible person with a, a you know kind of a strong moral sense and a kind of honesty the hunter would probably recoil and say this isn't right this isn't what it's supposed to be and so so that's that i think is a really kind of instructive lesson about technology in general it's it's uh it's perverting and perfecting um of of things that are distinctly and irreducibly human, right? And if you accept that it has that dual nature, then you're not going to look to the gadget itself and be like, is this bad or is it good? Rather, you're going to ask, how should I incorporate this into my life such that it helps me to perfect my human ends rather than distorting them? Let's pause for a moment to ask if you are looking for a Catholic university where the greatest works of Western and Catholic tradition are the foundation for learning, all in an environment that is faithful to the magisterium. That's the University of Dallas in Irving, Texas. 
Recommended by the Cardinal Newman Society, the university offers an exceptional liberal arts education with undergraduate and graduate programs in arts and sciences, business, and ministry, as well as a campus in Rome, Italy, all of them preserving the wisdom of the past while preparing students for world-changing futures. Academically excellent, always faithful. Apply today at udallas.edu. You, you proceed through many of the harms mm-hmm. uh, in the internet. One of them is that you find the fact that the, uh, the engines are algorithmic. Mm-hmm. What's bad about that? Well, I, I suppose there's nothing in itself that's bad, and this is good for many purposes. It's certainly good for teaching machines how to play chess, for example. Uh, that's precisely what a uh, what a machine needs to do. It needs to calculate for you know millions or billions of trillions of possible eventual chessboard scenarios from this or that movement of the pawn. Algorithmic processing of information is great for that sort of thing. But, I mean, already by the early 1960s, we find uh, uh, computer scientists like Norbert Wiener, uh, the the famous uh, cybernetician, um, warning that uh, that kind of learning is inevitably going to jump the fence, right? You start teaching a machine how to play chess, and before you know it, there's going to be, so to speak, a kind of mission creep where it starts resolving other things as well, um, and not just the whole range of, let's say, games and how to win at them, but also things we might think uh, prima facie should not be gamified, right? Like, for example, the contents of of, of novels or of poetry, right? Um, increasingly, because of algorithmic spread, we have the content of our what were supposed to be irreducibly human things um, being shaped by uh, uh, by algorithmic tools. Now, in this case, it has to do with you know online uh, sales metrics that determine what kind of novels people are going for this summer or whatever, but. Indirectly, that's algorithms shaping um, what is, again, I think, to use the same term I used for Leibniz's most valued form of thinking, it's it's unalgorithmizable. And if you algorithmize it, you're distorting the the, the nature of the thing. You have a lot of discussion of just attention, the act uh-huh. of of giving attention mm-hmm. to something you you say in in, in while while we're giving that attention, uh, it's never been so commodified before that actually the screen is reading us as we yeah. read the screen. I was, I was reading that yeah, and you know I was I was thinking back to you know William James has a whole chapter on attention in his yeah. uh, principles of psychology, but you call attention quote special among mm-hmm. mental faculties. Why, why is attention so important on this score? Well, I, I think the way I describe it, and of course it can be defined in a lot of ways, and I, 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 to some extent I go with William James here, but I think what's most 
kind of crucial about it. And this is really, I mean, you start to sense this in my, in discussion with me and you start to sense this as a, as an undercurrent in the book itself, uh, that I am, uh, very much an aesthetician monkey, uh, that, you know, I think about aesthetic questions, uh, whether I realize that that's what I'm doing or not. And I take attention to be paradigmatically, a faculty of the mind that is deployed in aesthetic experience, for example, of artworks. Um, of course, you can also attend to mundane things, uh, but what is unique about this faculty, I think, what it, as, it, as comes clear, most clear in the case of attending to artworks, is that you as the perceiver are likely to be transformed as a result of the application of attention, right? That is to say, for example, if you are paying attention to an apple on the table, then you're going to start to notice different properties of it. You're going to come away from the five minutes or however long you stare at it thinking, wait, I see things differently now, right? Whereas if you're simply conscious of the apple or aware of the apple, there's not much transforming within you. This is less intense in a way. Um, so uh, one thing that the internet is doing, obviously, is uh, exploiting our attention as a resource yeah. in its own right. And this comes most clearly with the, you know, the ad, uh, uh, ad tracking. And, you know, but it's not just on the Internet. There are these crazy technologies like now before they re release one of these horrible uh, uh, superhero movies, no. uh, they'll have a they'll have a, a test audience. And there are cameras in the screen as this Marvel Comics movie is being shown watching where the test audience's eyeballs are going, yeah. right? So it's literally huh. watching the audience, and then they make their final edit based on what's most uh, appealing uh, as eye candy to the original audience. And it's literally eye candy, right? Um, 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 it's junk um, huh. because it's, it's not allowing attention to be cultivated in the way I've just described it as something from which you come away transformed. Rather, it's just giving you what you think you already want, right? Um, now, this as well, this could just be a contingent fact about the present state of the internet. I, you know, I do mention that in 1895, the the longest uh, the longest cinematic feature was under a minute long. By 1964, Andy Warhol made Empire, which was <laughs> over eight hours long. And you know, it's not necessarily a masterpiece, but it does show that cinema has compelled its uh yeah. its viewers to undergo marathon exercises of attention right well, here, here's an example eric von stroheim's original cut of greed in what 1927 oh. i think that was eight hours <laughs> oh yeah 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 yeah. no it expanded very fastly very very, very quickly didn't it uh, from the from the late 19th century um kind of zoetrope shorts uh, by 1927, as you say, it was already uh, demanding 
marathon exercises of attention. But in any case, um, this is something that's not happening with the internet. And as long as it functions in, in this new kind of uh, attention extraction economy, I don't see how uh, it's ever going to help us cultivate our faculty of attention. Yeah. That's the argument. <laughs> You know, uh, you, you talked about 2015, a big, a big turning point, a fast one. Let me ask an autobiographical question for you, J Justin. Did you sense a, a lot of what you write in, mm -hmm. in the book? Did, did you see this years earlier? Were you having misgivings, reservations back in, in 2005, 6, 7? Um, no, I, I'm pretty slow. Yes, I, <laughs> I don't know. I, 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 maybe I should have, and I, I can remember other people who were more um, uh, lucid or prophetic than I was, and I just really didn't get it. I mean, it's the same thing with security and privacy issues. It took me until this most recent decade to really feel why. Uh, surveillance is a problem yeah. and how technology infringes on our privacy. And maybe it was just, you know, it required a certain level of ubiquity and dependency in order for me to really see it. Uh, but no, I've, I've, I've been slower than other people. But in part, that's because I think, you know, there really were significant changes made uh, to our social media feeds in the middle of the last decade. And I can remember, for example, when Facebook was the, you know, the fire hose feed where yeah. whatever your friends wrote, you saw it in the order they wrote it. And that seemed to me like a pretty adequate, reasonable way of going about things. And then in anticipation of Brexit and of the 2016 elections. So I'd say starting first in, say, 2014, I started noticing that stupid stuff was being prioritized. There's just no other way to put it. Yeah. Stuff that plays on your stupid reptilian emotions was giving uh, was being given central place and I was no longer seeing reflective thoughtful comments from people I respected and I just thought where did that go did people get stupider no it's just that the technology got more refined for the for the 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 um, the more fluid profit making of these companies and the political and civic disasters to come uh, uh, were you know were were again starting to appear on the horizon already around that time, I think. There, there is much more in the book on surveillance, uh, on your experience of being quarantined recently and, and then doing everything through Zoom. But the book is The Internet is Not What You Think It Is, A History, A Philosophy, A Warning. Professor Smith, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.